What is going on out there? Welcome back to Screen Speak. The podcast is all about movies, life, and so much more. As always, this is Jordan Anderson. This is my podcast, and I really do sincerely appreciate you coming by and giving this particular episode a listen. Uh, this long overdue episode of Listen, of which I do have uh, some explanations, <coughs> excuses, <laughs> uh, for for the absence. I will go ahead and get into that after I get the plugs out of the way and, and all that good stuff. So let me just go ahead and do that, and then we'll continue. So, you've listened to podcasts before I take it, unless this just, God forbid, happens to be your first one, of which you kind of picked a strange episode to stumble across for your very first podcast, but eh, whatever. You might really listen to this and just be like, whoa, I, I've never gotten in the podcast before. And damn, when I listen to that Jordan guy talk about the movie Rain Over Me with the Sandman himself, Adam Sandler, oh my God, I just got, I got to come back and listen to more. These, these are incredible insights. I've just, I've never heard anybody talk about this movie in this particular way before. Oh, it's so much better than radio and oh my God. Um, Holy shit. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm not doing that reaction for the, like for the horrid introduction I just did. There's a bug. There's a damn bug that just crawled over here. Ugh. Shit. I think it's away. I think it's alive still, though. I, I don't know what it is. Hang on. I, You know what? I'm not even editing this out because this, this is a thing that I'm going to get into in this episode is that I've been uh, a bit of a perfectionist lately and it's been practically killing me. So, no, I'm leaving this section in there. There was a damn bug. I swatted it away, and whatever. Let's let's just continue, <laughs> okay? Uh, I, I'm a weenie about bugs, if you haven't figured that out. Anyways, plugs. You've listened to a podcast before, I assume, okay? So, here's what you got to do. First, you hit the follow button, because that'll make sure that you don't miss out on other episodes of ScreenSpeaks, or should I say future episodes of ScreenSpeak. Uh, you can check out the description of this episode to get all the lovely links that you need to know, whether it be for following this, uh, for downloading episodes, for checking out the social media of the podcast, which of course is on Instagram. So you can go ahead and follow me over there. Uh, I post the latest updates of things going on there. Occasionally do uh, unscheduled, unscheduled random live videos for no particular reason, probably because I'm still figuring out how best to use Instagram live. So that is something that happens sometimes, but I digress. Those are the plugs. So you go ahead and do that. I would really, really appreciate it as it does help me to stay motivated to continue to record content for you. Now, that being said, I did say I was going to tell some, uh, a little bit of a tell all, if you will, about where the hell have I been? Where have I been? What is happening? I haven't uploaded content since January 18th. I'm recording this on February 27th, so what the hell? What gives? Um, well, here's what gives, okay? I think I posted a good while ago on Instagram that I had a bunch of life updates, I guess, to start off the new year, some of which I'm you know, comfortable with sharing. Some other stuff is a little private, so I'm not going to share it and air it out on here. Um, but the stuff that I can share is that I did start a new job. I started a new job with the day job that I'm at. So it's not like I'm at like an entirely new organization, but I did start a new job from within it and it is in the realm of marketing. So that has been incredibly exciting, very challenging in good ways. Uh, also stressful, I, I would say. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Starting a new job at, at times, it, it can be stressful. And, and that's certainly no exemption for me, even with it being in a creative field. So there's been some challenges with that. 
Okay. Um, and that's certainly taken a lot of my time because this day job, this new day job that I'm doing is, is much more, um, it's much more mentally demanding than the previous one was. And I, and I don't say that in a bad way. I'm just saying it in an honest and truthful way. Um, this job is more mentally demanding than taxing. And so therefore, you know, I only have so much gas in the tank throughout the day and I got to try to, um, you know, devote my time and, and my brain power to where it can go. And I guess that's what I'm trying to say is that my brain power for the most part has been being dumped into my day job uh, because it's now in a creative field, which is fantastic because I feel like the skills and and hopefully the uh, the work that I can put into that, some of that will marry over or carry over, I should say, into the podcast itself. So I think that's really, really good stuff in the long run for both myself professionally and personally. So there's that. So the new job, okay? That's certainly something that started towards the beginning of the year, and it's definitely taken up a lot of my time lately, but there's been other stuff. So some other stuff that's been going on in my life has been me being a judge as part of the Cedar Rapids Independent Film Festival. Uh, that's happening here this April 2024, so that's a soft plug for that festival. It hasn't happened yet, but if you do happen to be in the Cedar Rapids, Iowa area, in the Iowa area, or just happen to be visiting somewhere from wherever you're at and you just happen to stumble across Iowa and or this area, go ahead and check out that festival because I judged a bunch of films that were, um, well, not all of them get selected, of course. You have to kind of go through an elimination process, if you will, of which I had never done that before. Uh, but I'll give you the cliff notes on how it went. So in short, I had to watch around a hundred and some odd film submissions for this festival. I think in the end we settled on 50 some odd films, but that still means that you have to watch all of it. Uh, and in total, I think the total runtime for it all was like some like 44 plus hours worth of films to watch. So just, just do the math on this, okay? If you have a full-time job, you're married, you're in general a, a, a brother, a, a, you know, a, a son, uh, a friend of people, you're trying to do your job and, and also watch all these movies and still, and still find the time to do a podcast, uh, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. And I admit at the time that I was doing the judging and trying to kind of do it all, as they say, I think I bit off more than I could chew, okay? I did. I think I bit off more than I could chew. And so I just decided it's best to focus on the judging aspect, best to focus on the new job, uh, and eventually return to the podcast when I'm feeling 110%, because that's something that I know for sure I have mentioned <clears throat> that I've mentioned in past episodes of the podcast is that I refuse to do this when I'm not feeling 110%. Now, that's not to say that I'm being like a perfectionist, which I, w I will touch on that because that is something else that I, I do want to address on here as far as the delay in content is tied back to this perfectionist thing. So what I've been trying to say with this all is that I just don't believe in producing and putting out podcast content when it's not coming from a place of 110%, uh, meaning that my focus is there, my passion is there, my creativity is there. Uh, that's that's when I want to be able to put content out to you. So the stuff's got to be 110% for me. It, it just, it needs to be the highest quality possible for you. It doesn't mean it needs to be perfect, but it does need to be of the highest standard for myself because otherwise I'm just not going to be able to respect myself and have respect for you, the audience, which is taking the time to listen to this podcast amongst a sea of so many different podcasts and just mediums of entertainment out there to consume. So 
I, I understand how precious your time is. And so I'm just very mindful about that when I'm creating content and giving it to you, the audience, uh, which completely gives me purpose for, for producing content and giving it to you all. Otherwise I'm just talking into, you know, a, a black hole, a, a meaningless black hole. That's, that's just what it is. So where does this tie back to perfectionism? Let's, let's talk about that for a second. And then I swear we'll go ahead and get into the actual episode itself. Cause I got a lot of good stuff to talk about in this episode about rain over me, uh, which is a podcast that I feel like I've been prepping since I was 16 years old in, in some way, but more on that later. So <clears throat> where this whole idea of the 110% thing is tying into perfectionism is something that I think I really had been struggling with for the past month or so. And I'll explain what I mean right now. So like I said, I really want to be able to do this when I feel sharp, I feel ready, I feel prepped. Um, and there's a fine line with that, right? I mean, like some of it's just personality and your energy and are you having a good day and are you able to carry that over into uh, into a microphone for an audience to listen to? That's part of it. But then there's another part of the podcast that people don't really see or talk about. Uh, And that's the logistical side. That's the side where you're doing the actual research and prep for the episode. Uh, You're making your outlines. You're figuring out the tone that you're trying to strike for the episode. Uh, You might have to get clips to go ahead and splice throughout the episode. There is an entire post-production process that goes into this. There's graphics that have to get made, social media stuff that has to get done. Um, I find that if you get really into the weeds for it, it's, it's quite easy for it to become almost all too consuming and, and honestly a little bit stressful when you're trying to you know maintain a day job, you're trying to maintain uh, that thing that you call life on a personal aspect and still just find time for just the things that you enjoy, just doing what you enjoy. And, you know, hey, what do I enjoy? I love, I love watching movies. I love watching movies and, and I don't love just talking about them, but I do love watching them. And I think I found myself... The place that I was getting that, that I was basically just almost like a robot, feeling like a robot a little bit, where it's like, okay, work all day, uh, you know, judge judge films for the film festival, watch stuff. Um, everything felt very, it was feeling very procedural for me, I guess, is, is for, for lack of a better word or expression. I, I had just been feeling a little bit stagnant um, and just been feeling like I was just so consumed on being productive and being efficient that I kind of lost sight of the creative spark, frankly, that's needed, the thing that you can't prepare for and the thing that you can't overproduce to to make the podcast pop and, and really be what it is. And that's that all comes from within you, which is, I, I know that sounds cheesy, but I do think that there is some truth to that. And so I guess that piece of me had just been missing for a little bit. And in the interest of just keeping my focus on my new responsibilities in my day, uh, and also just trying to balance out the other aspects of my life, I decided I needed to pull back. So that's what I did. It wasn't planned. I think I had planned to do that for maybe about a week or two weeks, and it turned out to be damn near a month. Uh, but I guess I needed it because in the interim, what I've been doing, I've been watching been watching a lot of movies when I haven't been working, which has been great. I got to catch up on a big backlog of stuff, which actually... You know, I've talked about physical media at nauseum probably on the podcast here and there, but I do have a stack of the movies that I have been watching. Uh, again, in that time just for myself where it's like, hey, like, you know, don't just watch movies and think about it as work, but watch it because you actually want to get some enjoyment out of it. 
Um, so I got a big stack of movies here. I'm going to read off to you here and, and then we'll go ahead and get into stuff. So give me one second. All right, so I'm just going to mention these all. These are in no particular order, by the way, for when I watch them. It's just this is all stuff that I have watched within like the last, yeah, I guess like the last month that I just haven't talked about. Uh, I watched The Prestige most recently. I can tell you that. That's the Christopher Nolan movie with Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale. Um, I don't know what it is actually about this movie, but for some reason, this particular viewing of it, which... I don't know. Maybe you could say this is like my fifth or sixth time seeing the movie. I don't know. I think something about it just worked for me more than any of the other previous viewings had. And I don't know if it's just because I was more focused on it. I was less distracted. I wasn't trying to overly juggle stuff. I don't know. But The Prestige is a damn good movie. And it really honestly might be one of Christopher Nolan's best. And I think that's probably a, you know, it's a tough thing to say because he has so many of his best. I mean, you know, Dark Knight, Batman Begins, Oppenheimer, 13 Oscar nods. So yeah, that's not nothing, but yeah, The Prestige, great film. Uh, the Equalizer, the first Equalizer. Um, Equalizer 2 sucks, <laughs> just for the record. Um, I don't think I'll ever own that movie despite wanting to be a completionist, but The Equalizer 2 is a pile of crap. Uh, but I do like Equalizer 1. So I decided to rewatch that. I actually think I fell asleep to it and probably missed like the last 20 minutes of it, of which I did finish that the next day. But I just really hate doing that because it's like movies are meant to be seen in one sitting. You're not supposed to break them up like a TV show. Uh, but in any case, I watched uh, The Equalizer and eventually I'll probably see Equalizer 3, but I'm not in a big hurry to watch that. Uh, I watched Ambulance. Uh, that's the Michael Bay, Jake Gyllenhaal. I can never pronounce this actor's name. Yaha Abdul Mateen II. Uh, maybe that's how you pronounce it. I thought it was harder. Um, oh, and then there's the actress in it. Uh, Aza? Aza? Gonzalez? I, okay, I definitely butchered her name. Um, <clears throat> this is a great movie. Uh, or, you know, great by Michael Bay standards is what I should say. I really enjoyed it. Seriously, super solid movie. Um, I wouldn't mind rewatching it again at some point, but I enjoyed it for what it was. Good stuff. Um, watched a classic film that I had actually never seen. Uh, when Harry Met Sally, Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan, Rob Reiner film. Was it from 1982 or 89? Holy crap. 89, 1989. Uh, watched that with the missus a while back. Just one of those movies that I stumbled across and I'm like, you know what? I feel like this is one of those cultural milestone pop pop culture movies that I just I should just own just to have it. Um, but it's actually a really, really clever movie. Though I do think in hindsight the whole oh, oh, oh like the I'll have what she's having seen, that doesn't work for me quite as well as I'm sure it probably did at the time, because I think when you watch it now you're just like, this person is is crazy. It's it's not even really that funny. But in any case, I, I guess it's good. Um, oh, let's see. I watched Joyride uh, with Steve Zahn, Paul Walker, and I definitely can't pronounce her name. Lili Sobieski? Sobieski? Um, anyways, this was a cheap pickup that I got a while back. Um, I'd never seen it. Had always kind of been like one of those movies where like I walked by and I was like, ah, I'll get around to watching it one day. And I think I found it for like three bucks. So that explains that. Um, and Steve Zahn is somebody that I really feel like he had a moment in like the early 2000s. And I, I know he's still working consistently and does a lot of stuff, but I feel like that that guy just never got his due, um, never got his true praise because I think he's just great in damn near everything that he pops up in. 
Um, but anyways, yeah, th- this was an enjoyable movie. Um, kind of creepy with the whole Buffalo Bill aspect in there. Uh, in other words, Ted Levine as the truck driver. Is that, is that you, Candy Candy Cane? Candy Cane, I'm going to come for you. Um, I think there's also a bunch of straight-to-DVD shit sequels with it, too. Um, being a little presumptuous by saying shit, but I mean straight-to-DVD, and this is before the streaming era and stuff. I think there's like Joyride 2, Joyride 3, Joyride 4. Who the hell knows? There's a lot of joy rides. Um, <clears throat> Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. This was given to me as a gift for my birthday. And I had seen it only once in theaters. And so I was like, ah, I will go ahead and watch this again. I remember my initial reaction to the movie just kind of being meh. But um, after watching it again, there's still a lot of meh quality to it. But there is actually some stuff that really did work for me in the movie. Uh, particularly the opening opening 20 minutes that first act is is really really good really solid stuff even with the questionable cg uh the tone and the energy was completely right for indiana jones um even some of the story beats uh i still still liked overall um and and honestly in general this movie is just better than what kingdom of the crystal skull was so while i think indiana jones is i mean he's harrison ford's probably too damn old to be playing the part um it works it works, and it was a fine ending for the character. Um, let's just hope they don't try to, you know, bring bring another Indiana Jones or resurrect Harrison Ford when God forbid he's gone. Which I'm not trying to do that, by the way. Let's not get rid of Harrison Ford. He is uh, one of the goats. Um, I watched White Squall, Ridley Scott film. Um, this is a movie that I almost kind of forget is a Ridley Scott film, and it's just one where I'm like, ah, Jeff Bridges sailing boats. This seems interesting. One of these days, I'll get around to it. And maybe that's part of it, too. I was, I was just getting tired of this one of these days things. Like, I, I was getting so freaking backed up for movies that I want to see that I just, I, I subconsciously forced myself to make it happen. Probably not ideal for the podcast audience and for the whole, you know, you got to be consistent in your content, man. Got to release every day, every week if you want to grow that audience. Yes, I get that. But I'm also not in a hurry to do it. So just want it to happen organically over time natural all natural so uh quick thoughts on white squall it is definitely not among ridley scott's best films um far from it to be honest the the parts that work for it really well jeff bridges he, he actually is really really good in the movie which that's not really surprising jeff bridges is a pretty consummate actor he's pretty great in damn near anything he pops up in save when he's doing the whole my true great voice that he did in like the what was that like mid 2010s or something because he did like true grit and r.i.p.d and I think he did. What was it? What the hell was that wizard movie he did? The seventh son of a the seventh son of a seventh son. Uh, someone's gonna know what I'm talking about with that for the, all the the three people that watched that movie. <laughs> um, but Jeff Bridges, great. Honestly, a lot of the sailing stuff was interesting. Uh, it's neat to see all the different ins and outs that go into operating a sail ship, and you know, just the the dedication and the grit that it takes to go ahead and do it. And there is like a whole majestic beauty to it. And, you know, it really puts hair in your chest kind of thing for all the young people that are in it. Like that, that's all well and good. Um, but actually to me, what, what is the thing that drags this movie down is a lot of the younger cast, to be honest. Um, 
a lot of them just don't work that well. There's a couple that are like the central uh, central youth performances in the movie, and they come across kind of awkward sometimes and a bit stilted. And I just think when they're being stacked up next to Jeff Bridges, who's who's so great um, and natural at what he does, it's uh, you know it's a, it's a little bit hard to miss. Um, that said, though, this is a this is a neat true story though too. So I mean, if you're in the sailing and whatnot. Uh, you probably get something out of the movie, but it's just not going to be one that I think I would revisit a lot. Um, though I did appreciate for, uh, excuse me, though I did appreciate some of the elements that were in the film. Uh, and last but certainly not least for stuff I watched in the last month, I guess, you know, this could be an episode in of itself, just stuff I watched in the last month. Uh, I watched the Todd Haynes film. I'm not there. The Bob Dylan I almost don't even really want to call this a biopic because it's so not traditional of a biopic. Um, almost more like a fever dream than anything else because it's really experimental in its tone. It's it's really different, but I really dug this movie. Um, one, partly because I really like Bob Dylan music and I've always been a, a casual fan, certainly not steeped in Dylan, but I've been a fan for as long as I can remember. And this is just one of those movies, too, where I just feel like I walked by it a long time. I heard about how it got a lot of buzz for Kate Blanchett Blanchett, uh, playing a man, playing Bob Dylan, that whole thing. She got an Oscar nomination for it, which is pretty great. But then, you know, it also has the late, great Heath Ledger in it, uh, Christian Bale's in it, uh, Richard Gere. There's a big cast of this movie. And I don't know what it is, why the hell it took me so long to see this movie, because it came out all the way back in 2007. And sadly, I don't believe there is uh, a Blu-ray or 4K for this movie. I think there's only a DVD of it, so that's the format I watched it on. Um, But yeah, I'll give some love to this movie right now before we get into the main meat of the episode, which is Rain Over Me. Um, I'm Not There is a really, really well-done film. As I said, it's, it's not conventional in its tone. Um, I think it's really unique in how it has all these different eclectic actors playing versions of the same person though they're not all like literally named bob dylan like some of them uh clearly are supposed to be him but they change some of the names around and stuff but you're still able to follow um i don't think i understand everything about the movie to be honest because bob dylan i think is a, a musical genius um and so some of his lyrics and the deeper meaning of it i mean i wish i had more time in my life to you know get more into that and I'll maybe sit down with somebody and just talk about Bob Dylan for an hour, but I don't have that time. So for what it was, the music's fantastic in it. The performances are great. I really like the unconventional style and it's filmmaking. Um, I think it's held very steadily and it's actually a movie that I would probably not mind actually rewatching at some point. And like I said, just doing a deep dive on it more because I really did find it interesting, uh, compelling, and it made me appreciate Bob Dylan all, all the more. So. Let me set those back over here. And now let's go ahead and get into the main event, as if this is a boxing thing. Rain Over Me, written and directed by Mike Binder, starring Don Cheadle and the great Adam Sandler. He likes you, Alan. You know why? Because you know nothing about his family. So he figures you won't ask any questions. I have these things that I don't like to think about. I can't do this. I gotta put these back on. Only I don't know how I got to the place where I'm not letting you in. I don't want to be that guy, baby. Well, then just come home. I love you. 
it's easy to see that this man is going through something very profound. Are you going to be all right, Charlie? And you're going to make it, right? No! trailer didn't give away the plot for you i'll go ahead and spell it out for you right now and we'll get going so in rain over me you meet charlie Feynman, who's played by adam sandler he's a man that's been swallowed whole by grief after losing his family in the aftermath of 9-11 he's practically a ghost that's just drifting through life quite literally at times on an electric scooter but he's really disconnected from reality but then fate reconnects charlie with his old college roommate Alan Johnson, played by the great Don Cheadle, who's shocked to realize and see what's become of his once vibrant friend. As the two people reconnect, Alan realizes that he's not just dealing with a friend that's in need of a simple pick-me-up, but he's actually dealing with a man that is drowning in sorrow. He's facing a man that is completely lost. And through a roller coaster of emotions, music, and Shadow of the Colossus. Colossus! They embark on a journey of healing, discovering that sometimes the hardest battles are the ones that are fought within ourselves. Um, okay, wow. So, there's a lot to unpack with my thoughts for this movie. Um, a lot to unpack. And, and actually, be- before I do that, and I feel bad because I've, I've given a couple of preludes to this. It's like, just get into it, okay? I just want to say right now how happy I am to be able to be producing an episode like this. It's been really a long time since I've been able to just make an episode about a film that I really care about and do it OG screen speak style where I'm not having guests on or any of that. Not that I don't enjoy that and there will certainly be more to come with that, but it's just me being allowed to pour my passion and feelings out for a film that really means a lot to me and I think hopefully through my through my speaking to it, uh, speaking to it with you, we'll be able to get something out of it together and you'll really be able to enjoy it. And honestly, I th- I'm really hopeful that this is an episode that really kind of gets at what the heart of screen speak is about, which is me talking about how much movies speak to me on a personal level and hopefully being entertaining in the process. And maybe a little bit touchy feely on this one, because this one is an emotional one. So um, let me answer this question to you all first about why exactly this film speaks to me. So First off, I think it's got to do partly with the time that it was released, which was March of 2007. At the time, I would have been 16 years old, and 16-year-old Jordan is not somebody that I like to revisit all that often. Uh, He's an awkward guy. He's got a lot of acne, no self-confidence, probably depressed in in some state, um, but mainly aimless, directionless, insecure, Um, I think lonely and honestly a little bit bitter to the fact that I felt like I was kind of in my own world at the time and that nobody could really see it. Um, and that, you know, I'm just kind of mad and and bitter with the world around me because of all the things I just mentioned, which of course are, you know, certainly a lot of things I, I had to uh, be of my own fault. Uh, but those are things at the time I'm not, I'm not going to get into all the reasons why I was like that, but it was definitely prevalent during that time, uh, that I was 16 years old. So I think the movie hit me at the right time in my life because I feel like the movie and I, and I still feel that to this day about this film, few films are able to capture the particular feeling of what it's like about being alone 
just really feeling and being alone. I feel like Rain Over Me is a is a great case in point example of a movie that does this well of capturing the feeling of being alone, despite being surrounded, mind you, uh, by a bunch of people because these characters live in New York City, which you know on paper it's like, well, great, like this is like the social capital of the world. It's the city that never sleeps. How in the hell could they be miserable, right? Well, people are going through stuff. People are going through stuff every day. And I think this movie is beautiful because it sort of makes you see that there's probably a lot of people that pass by you in life, whether it be in a big uh, metropolitan area or rural area, doesn't really matter. But there's probably a lot of people that you pass by in life that you have no idea that they are battling uh, demons, they've gone through some really terrible things, or maybe they're just trying to get by and just get through one day at a time. Uh, and I feel like this movie is just a great look into that psyche uh, and helps us to understand that there are people that that need help out there, uh, especially when they're not capable of being seen at the moment. We have to take the time to, to look out for them ourselves. I also think that the film has a romantic quality to it, not not just in like the literal romance that's in the movie at times, but there's this romanticism notion of solitude and seclusion that I think I find throughout the movie, uh, whether it's Adam Sandler riding around on his scooter, the times where he's able to just be alone and practically do whatever he wants, uh, despite the circumstances, which are of course in his character, if you haven't seen the movie and I'll try to do my best not to go into spoiler ish territory. But if I do happen to slip, I'll try to throw it in there that oops, spoiler, but this film's been out since 2007. So um, I would actually, you know, I'll actually say this right now. Do yourself a favor if you want to, to be a real screen speak fan, check out this movie first and then come back and listen to this conversation that I'm having with myself and you all, uh, because I think it'll actually just be that much more fresh on your minds and you'll be able to appreciate it more if you do that. And I don't think I've ever asked you all to do that before. So maybe one or two of you will do it. And, and that's enough for me if that happens. So anyways, there's this romantic notion I feel that's in the movie of, you know, wouldn't it just be great if I just didn't have anybody bothering me, if I was just able to live in peace, not have needs, because he, he doesn't have money concerns, unfortunately, due to some incidents that happen uh, in the film. But that, of course, doesn't mean that he's happy. I mean, he, he's really anything but happy with it. Um, he has everything he needs from a financial standpoint, um, but he doesn't have connection. He, he, he doesn't have... Um, any outlets really besides Shadow of the Colossus, which I'll talk about that. Um, but I don't know. I think there's there's something to be said about that, especially when you look at it from the character of Alan's point of view, who's a real working class man and he's a family man, and all he really knows is responsibility and professional duties and you know all that stuff. It's probably been since his college days that he was even able to have any sort of time like the time that Charlie has where he's able to ride around in his scooter and just go shopping for records and uh, playing video games and staying up at all hours of the night. Like this is something that the character Alan has no real, you know, um, he doesn't have a connection to that himself. In some ways he's disconnected from that side of himself, which is a side that regardless of if you're married or not, it is important that you have that freedom to be able to do what you want sometimes, right? We, we do need that in balance. Uh, that'll make sense if you've seen this movie. The film also speaks to me a lot because I really think that it is a testament to the power of real friendship. And I and I do mean real friendship is depicted in this movie. Um, 
both the characters are able to know and understand the real versions of themselves. And in a lot of ways, you actually see sometimes the sparks of the bond that they have almost almost emanating the type of friend that you always wish that you could have. And it doesn't matter at what age that you're at for that, by the way. I think everybody has these ideal fantasies or notions about what the perfect friend would be or what the ideal relationship with a friend would be. But I go back to the power of the friendship feeling very real in this movie, especially when it's not pretty, because with all the the trauma that Adam Sandler's character has gone through in the movie, uh, Don Cheadle hasn't had the same type of things happen, but certainly he has his own baggage that he carries around with him. Both of the characters get to see each other during moments in their lives where it's not pretty, it's not comfortable. Uh, in fact, it's it's a uh, it's it's uncomfortable uh, at a lot of different points um, that these characters have in the movie, and and that might be a little bit jarring to the audience. We're like, oh, geez, like you know, these people really shouldn't even be around each other. Like this one's got way way out their issues. The other one uh, is not going to be a good fit to be able to help them. How in the hell could this possibly work? But, but that's the thing with true friends, um, true, real friends. They're there for you in your worst days. They're there for you when you hate yourself or when you've made mistakes that you're like, no one on earth should forgive me for this or whatever the case may be. Um, real friends don't turn your back on you and they come and check on you, especially when it's not cool to do so, or when it's not popular or when it's not efficient or when it's not good for them. Uh, real friends will take the time to do that stuff. And and that's something that not everybody has the luxury of knowing. Um, you know, even myself, I, I've, I've had the fortune of having some good friends in my life, but friends, friendship, like what's depicted in here is something that I can't say that I actually know. Um, but, but maybe one day, maybe one day. And so I think there's somewhat of a, of a hopeful quality that this movie has when it comes to, what a real friendship can look like and what it, what it should look like. And and that everybody is, is capable of having it, especially when it's least expect, or especially when it's not expected. This movie also speaks to me because of the music. Um, this is one of the movies that has one of the greatest soundtracks that I can speak to. Um, Probably not well, because I I think I've said that before in the podcast that I always wish that I could articulate how music makes me feel, Uh, but I'll do my best for this section of it. Um, <clears throat> Rain Over Me has a terrific soundtrack. You have uh, amazing artists like Graham Nash of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Uh, you got Pearl Jam in there. Bruce Springsteen's there a couple of times. The Pretenders. Um, I'm trying to think of anybody else that's in the movie, but the movie just really does have a great soundtrack to it. Um, and more than just the great soundtrack to the movie is that the music is quite literally a character in the film. And that's one of the uses of music, specifically when they're going to be using songs from real artists that I love, is when they actually find a way to work it into the narrative and have it serve and add fuel to the story that's already powerful on its surface with the subject matter, but the music just elevates it that much further. Um, This movie, I think without this movie, I actually probably wouldn't know who Graham Nash was or Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Uh, that's a group and an artist that are before my time, but it, it doesn't matter because they, they make great music. Graham Nash, I think, is actually still making music uh, to this day, I think. Um, I just listened to a song called, what was it, like Better Man, I think? Not not the Pearl Jam song. There's a song called Better Man or Better Days or something like that. I, I can't think of it. You can look it up and check it yourself. If I did have to say specific songs to listen to off the movie... 
I mean, the opening credits track, um, Simple Man by Graham Nash. I got to talk about that for a second. Uh, Holy shit. That is a song that cuts deep. That cuts deep. I, I, I don't try to make every single movie about personal stuff with myself, but... Uh, this is one where there's just a lot of things in this movie that really helped me out in, in a time in my life when I really needed it. And that song, Simple Man, I'm telling you, listen to it. I don't care if you listen to it on Spotify. You listen to a live version of it. It's been done in multiple iterations by Graham Nash. It's it's such a great song because it's one of those ones where like you wish it was like two minutes longer because it's not a very long song. I think it might be like two minutes tops, maybe even less. But it's so beautiful. It's so simple. The The lyrics have like this longing for love quality to it, which of course fits perfectly for um, the tone of what the movie's going for. And especially the character of Charlie Feynman and just this, this person that's desperate for love, but but he's unable to express it at this at this pivotal moment in his life. Um just a terrific song. I'm serious. If you do if you do nothing else besides watching Rain Over Me, look up that song after listening to this or even stop me talking right now and just look it up because it's it's that good. And then you can come back and, and comment and let me know what you think about it. Um, let's see. So the music, fantastic. Um, I think the movie also has a very authentic feel to it. Um, not just from like a filmmaking standpoint, which I think in my notes, I was going to talk about that. The movie just has a real authentic quality to it. Um, in a lot of the behaviors that are convicted on the screen. And that's, I guess, going back to this idea of the movie showing real friendship when it's not always pretty or perfect uh, or, you know, perfectly paced and things like that. It's hard to explain, but there's a few moments in the movie where you know, their, their friendship's kind of clumsy at times, or it's, it's awkward. It's a little bit uncomfortable. And at, at, upon first viewing, like that might feel like it's a pacing problem with the movie, but the more I've gone back and revisited this movie, the more I'm like, no, this is just showing real life sometimes. And, and real life and real friendship sometimes is like this. It's, it's not always by design. It's not supposed to be perfect. It's ugly. Sometimes it's messy. Um, but it's real. It feels real and it feels very truthful. That's, that's I guess, all I can say about that. Those are all the main reasons why the movie speaks to me as loudly as it does. And I'm sure throughout the course of this episode, I'll continue to express that, uh, that and more. Now, what I want to get into now is the performances of the movie. So I'll start with Don Cheadle. I have a lot of appreciation and respect for his performance, namely because of how compassionate his his character is throughout the movie. And I think I think Don Cheadle does a great job of giving an understated, restrained performance in a lot of ways because he's a man that has his own problems and insecurities. I think I mentioned that he has his work problems where he's basically being emasculated by his business parts, uh, his business partners, uh, and he's unhappy with his his place in life, despite having money, you know, beautiful wife, kids. Um, you know, living in a great city like New York and, you know, being where he's at and doing what he does. I don't think he feels a lot of satisfaction because he doesn't really have any sort of social life. Um, and he doesn't really have anything that taps into what makes him human, you know, what makes him just have fun. He, he's all, he's all business. It's, it's, it's killing him slowly inside without him even realizing it. 
Uh, and I just think Don Cheadle does, he, he, he conveys that so well without even saying that much at times, but you can just see it. He's also very vulnerable in the movie, uh, and he's a great supportive presence, of course, to Adam Sandler's character. I think another thing that I really like about his performance, and also this, this more so goes to the writing of the film, is that he has a great arc. He has a great arc throughout the story. Both characters do. Um... I like his arc because he starts the story with feeling disconnected, um, feeling empty, I would say, as I said, dissatisfied with his job for sure, probably his personal life in a lot of respects. But through the rekindling of his friendship with Charlie, he's able to put his own problems to the side. And in fact, it helps him to, of course, help his friend, but that it helps him to reevaluate his own life's problems. Um, yeah, it's 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 just really great stuff. He's able to get more courage to speak his mind up when he's at home. He's able to develop a deeper appreciation for his family. And he shows real commitment to true friendship and realizes that he has the opportunity to be a true friend to somebody in his life that is largely ignored by, by mass society. And, and I'm not saying that I feel you know, pessimistic about that or, or passive aggressive in some way towards that, because I think everybody at one point or another has probably walked by somebody like that, somebody that's gone through a whirlwind of shit um, or just is having a tough go of it, as they say. And, you know, we got better things to do and we only have so much time in our day to be able to do that. So, you know, what what can you do? I'm not saying it's personal. Um, but I, but I certainly think that there's something to be said about the people that we ignore in life. Probably, probably the best thing I can say about Don Cheadle in the movie, aside from all the things I just said, um, and also his just natural chemistry that he has with Adam Sandler, which I wouldn't, I don't even know if I would say that's expected because I'll talk about this when I get to Adam Sandler, but you know, this is not a typical Sandman movie. You know, this ain't no Bobby Boucher. Mama said, mama said, no, mama did not say this is rain over me, not the water boy. The best part about Don Cheadle in this and his performance and the writing is that he has unwavering amount of patience and strength um, to be able to help his friend, especially when he's having uh, pressure from home, uh, pressure from his job, <clears throat> Honestly, probably self-pressure too, just questioning if he even should be doing this or if he's gone too far or if he's overstepping his place as a friend. Um, there's a lot of complex things that he's able to tackle through this movie. And again, I think he takes the less is more approach. And I think it really, really works for the movie. Um, and it allows him to play the perfect supporting role over to Adam Sandler, who you could say is definitely the... the <clears throat> Well, he's certainly the focal point of the movie because a lot of it is centered around trying to get through to his character and trying to help his character out. So let's go ahead and talk about that. All right. So Adam Sandler, my God, um, I'll just say it right now, right off the top from this, as if you haven't figured out, I'm just basically going to be gushing about this movie for probably the, probably the rest of the podcast. Um, this is possibly my favorite Adam Sandler performance. You know, I, I feel like a lot of people like dramatically, like if they're going to look at this, they're going to say punch drunk love. That's that's usually the most popular. Some people might follow it up with Spanglish. Oh, sorry. I forgot to throw in uncut gems on that. That's a more recent one. But 
for me and probably for personal reasons, I feel like I'm overtaking this, but this is my favorite Adam Sandler dramatic performance of his career. I, I just know it is. I actually did take the trouble of putting together my top five best dramatic performances across his career for this. And so I'll give you my list real quick for this. So my number one, like I said, it's Rain Over Me. Number two, Uncut Gems. So it's not followed far from behind from Rain Over Me because Uncut Gems is, I mean, it's just, it's anxiety. It's an anxiety overload, but man, Adam Sandler is so convincing and good in that movie. Um, definitely check that out if you haven't seen it. Number three, I'm going to actually throw Hustle in there. Uh, the Netflix film where he's a basketball scout, that is a really solid movie and actually a great movie to rewatch too if you ever get around to it. Punch Drunk Love for me is actually number four. It's number four. And then number five, which I was kind of in between actually putting um, Punch Drunk Love behind this one. But then I decided at the last minute, eh, it's got the PTA angle to it. It's got Philip Seymour Hoffman in it. It elevates it a little for me. Um, so number five for the best dramatic Adam Sandler performances for me is Funny People. Uh, that's the Judd Apatow movie where he's playing... Um, a comedian that gets uh, diagnosed with a rare illness and has to deal with it. Um, there's definitely more comedic elements to that movie, but his character does have a lot of dramatic moments in the movie. Uh, and I actually just think that movie in general is an is a underlooked movie. Rain Over Me is an overlooked movie, and then uh, Funny People is an underlooked. Or is that the same thing? I don't know. You can tell me later. In putting together the top five lists for this, I couldn't help but look at his comedies as well, because that's, of course, what he's known for. And I was like, yeah, you know what? In doing the research for this one, I'll go ahead and throw together my top five comedies for The Sandman. Let's do it. So I'll actually start from the bottom on this one. I started from the top on the other. Start from the bottom. So at number five, we got Happy Gilmore. Number four, we got Click. Number three, The Waterboy. Number two, this one might be a surprise, Mr. Deeds, which is a remake. Uh, and then number one, this actually, I think this is just going to be a surprise because I think the fact that I mentioned Happy Gilmore at the bottom of the list, I didn't even talk about Big Daddy or, or any of the other ones on there. But my number one's actually going to be Anger Management. Yeah, I know. Anger Management. The reason for that, I think, has to do strongly with the pairing of him with Jack Nicholson, which I just think is is just one of those pairings in, in comedy history of movies that was just really, really great at the time. Um, you ain't going to get that back again. And there's just a lot of really funny chemistry between the two of them. So I feel like it's kind of cheating because it's not like a solo, not like a solo Adam Sandler performance, but it, it is just my personal favorite of his uh, comedic, comedic performances over his career. So there you go. But let me talk about his performance in this particular film, Rain Over Me. So I have a real appreciation for his performance in a number of levels. Uh, namely, I think with the depiction that the movie presents of grief or that he presents of grief. Uh, there's a lot of tough things that he's having to, to tackle. And, and I don't care if he's a comedic actor stepping into this, this would be tough work for any actor, even if it was somebody that's got a lot of dramatic chops and that's what they're known for. Um, but you have somebody that's dealing with survivor's guilt. Um, he's uncomfortable obviously because he is struggling with likely post-traumatic stress syndrome of some kind. Um, <clears throat> and due to that, he has difficulties expressing himself Part of the difficulty expressing himself is that he doesn't have a lot of control over himself. So I think 
there's somewhat of an unpredictable nature to the character and, and that makes it exciting to watch. Um, but, but also nervous some too, because you, you just don't know what this person's going to do. Um, but on the grief side of it, I just think Adam Sandler is able to just convey so much that this person has gone to extreme lengths to bury so much of this pain deep, deep down inside of them. Uh, so much so to the point where you're unsure if it's even able to come up. Um, and in that regard, it, it gets confusing as well. And so I just think even if you just look at grief and how Adam Sandler is embodying it in this movie, he's so perfectly able to encapsulate all those unique aspects of that very particular word, grief. Uh, but but there's even more I can say about this. This is going to be an interesting take, I think, for those of you that have seen the movie. But I find it very interesting that he chose the road of going into regression of his adolescence at times. At least that's how I have um, analyzed this upon watching this movie so many different times. I've I've honestly lost track of how many times I've seen this. And in fact, I will probably end up watching this movie sooner rather than later because I, I didn't actually watch it before prepping this podcast. Um, this is just a movie that I've had on my mind, like I said, since I was 16 years old. And I was trying to figure out when's the right time to to do an episode on this. But eh, that's just maybe part of the lesson that I'm learning from the recording of this episode is that not everything's going to be perfect. It doesn't need to be. And that doesn't matter. Uh, what matters is that you're being truthful and true to the moment. So that's what I'm doing. And thank you, Rain Over Me, for inadvertently helping me with that. Adam Sandler does this interesting regression into adolescence at a couple of points in the movie. And I guess I figured this out because... First time when I'm watching it, when there's just points where he he is acting like a kid without me, I guess, realizing that he's doing it. Um, I think one of the scenes that, where that's most apparent is when he comes over to to visit Alan, uh, D- uh, Don Shields character. And I think it's shortly after his father died and he has you know some family members that are over still afterwards from the funeral. And he offers him to come inside. He's, he invites him inside to come inside for breakfast. Um, and then he ends up sitting on the counter with his headphones on like super socially awkward. And he's like rocking back and forth to himself, you know, almost like he has autism of some kind or, um, just extreme social awkwardness and insecurity to not even be able to talk with people almost like a kid, you know, and he's a grown man that's doing this, but it's something I think I, I learned in some of the research I did, I had done, uh, for this episode is that people that do have like severe, uh, severe trauma in certain respects. Um, of course, it depends on the person and whatnot. It's not uncommon for a person to regress to their adolescent self in order to use that as like some sort of a like a coping mechanism, basically, to deal with this pain that is that is unresolved and, and living within them that they don't know what to do with it. Now, of course, I'm talking like I'm some sort of psychologist or therapist. I'm not. This is just my own observations and research I've done. Um, but I think it's really an interesting, interesting way that he went into the character was by by doing that. I also think that one of the brilliant casting choices of Adam Sandler in this is that y- y- you can't ignore that he has his comedic chops, his comedic background. And I'm so glad that even though I would say like 70 percent of this performance is dramatic, uh, there is still a good 30 percent, maybe more where there's humor. There's humor that's expressed uh, both through the pain, through the chemistry and the moments that uh, that Adam Sandler has with Don Cheadle. Uh, the humor is still there between them. And, there, and there's really actually some great 
great realistically realistically done moments of humor in this movie so i really appreciate that you know going back to the arc of his character um he of course has a lot of isolation denial to to the world around him to the things in his life so he quite literally just shuts out everything um he escapes into music and and again i think there's a there's this romantic quality about that about how music is able to be a soothing a soothing aid for people in times of needs in this case to an extreme because he's just basically you know not talking to anybody just listening to the pretenders and bruce springsteen on loop uh but it does seem to help him and and he also is able to use video games to help himself escape uh escape his inner pain which yeah just damn so <clears throat> let, let me backtrack here so going back to the arc the arc and growth that his character has starting the film he he's very isolated and he's in arguably a large level of denial or just ignoring uh, of of his life circumstance and it's just kind of put himself into this bottleneck and, and he's just living like this he runs in the allen runs in the don Cheadle, and gradually very very gradually which i appreciate that the movie does make that feel real as well like like it's not like oh like they hang out twice and bam he's better now yep he just needed a good a good friend hangout to be able to get cured of his trauma and his family dying <laughs> uh, I'm glad they, they didn't do that because some movies really screw the pooch on this and they try to rush the plot along to, to hurry up and get to the end. And this movie doesn't do that. Thank God it takes its time, but eventually he's able to gradually open up with Alan and then eventually very, very eventually does it through the process of therapy. He's able to confront his past. He's able to open up those emotions and those feelings, which I mean, I, again, I guess I don't really, I really want to be careful at this point because I don't want to spoil it in case you haven't watched it yet. Um, but it almost, you know, it almost ruins him to, to do it, you know, to, to really dig into to the truth, to the truth of his reality. Um, that right there is just something I think a lot of people can relate to about like if you if you had to face certain things in your life that, you know, you you choose to push to the side that you choose to bury um, you know, you, I guess you don't know what it would do to you until it happens. Um, even if you haven't gone through a significant trauma like this, I think everybody can understand that there's, there's things in, in our lives that are painful to have to face and, and deal with. And, and the reaction that can come from that is, is something that isn't always going to be in your control because it's, it's all hinged on your emotions. It's uh, it's wild stuff, but it's true. But through his ability to finally be able to to open up, but not not completely, which I appreciate, it gets us towards the towards the ending of the film, which it feels like it's ending uh, with a notion of hope, uh, or at least a, a possibility of hope, but it's not clear. Um, that's just something I also really appreciate about this film as well is the simple fact that the ending is not clear and clean cut and, you know, with a nice bow tied on top of it. It feels realistic. It, it feels truthful in that some good came out of both these characters being together. They also had to experience a lot of pain to get to the point where they're at. And there's still quite a bit of healing that's that's left to go. And the future is uncertain, but it's hopeful. And I really, really appreciate that the movie did that. Those are the main appreciations for the performances in this movie and all the other stuff I said. But now I got to talk about some of the more uh, nuanced elements of the film and also some of the other things, uh, just, just aspects of this film that I wanted to air out on this episode. I think this movie has really clever use of 
how it decides to use the topic of 9-11 within the story. Really, really smart usage of that. So if you think about it with this movie, this movie came out in 2007. And let's think about it. September 11th, that's in 2001. Um, That's not that many years between between that really uh, horrible event, uh, that horrible event in human history and certainly American history. Um, So it's interesting that it decided to use that as opposed to just any other plane crash that's that's in the film or any other accident. They didn't necessarily need to have it be 9-11 focus, but I think it did help. Um, and that's mostly due to what I know Mike Binder, the, the writer and director of the movie, has been on record saying for it, is that he felt, I might be paraphrasing, so if I find the clip, actually, I'll, I'll probably insert it here so that you have some context to this. On 9-11, I was on, on ABC being interviewed by Diane Sawyer when the first plane hit the first tower and she broke through. I was there, so I wandered the street that day and um, I saw all these people walking around covered in soot and I would see these ladies walking by themselves crying and and I just knew that, you know, we were seeing people that had lost their whole life that day, you know. I was back with my family a year and a half later and I thought, I'm sure there are a lot of people that are still wandering the streets from that day, you know, people that that day hasn't ended Charlie! Charlie Feynman, hey! I did a lot of research and a lot of reading and a lot of talking with therapists and people that had lost spouses and and fathers. We talked to a lot of people because I didn't want to dwell on 9-11 or any kind of sensational kind of thing. I always knew this was a story about friendship and the people that were left and who was in their life. So I just like what he said there. The the fact that he's saying that you know, he felt like after that day that there's a lot of people that were left wandering around lost in the city, just trying to figure it out. And I think in a lot of ways that served as inspiration largely for the story. But where I think that the movie is really smart in its use of that is that it never felt exploitive to the tragedy itself. Like it never tried to put it in there for, oh yeah, like people are going to connect with this because it's 9-11. Like they never did it for entertainment's sake or anything like that. In fact, I think in the movie they maybe only even mention 9/11 like twice. I mean, like it's it's very seldomly mentioned in the movie. It's more so uh, alluded to or implied, uh, but they never go out of their way to directly say like, "Yeah, this was a 9/11 tragedy." Like they they don't really go out of their way to do that, um, which I think is very smart. I also think that for the story being set in New York, that that does help out quite a bit especially with the perspective that the film takes where everything is very much on the street. Um, You really feel like you are living in the city with this movie. Um, There's not really a lot of like big overhead sweeping shots of the buildings. Everything is very much from the ground level of the movie. And so in that sense, you feel like you're being trapped inside the walls of this city. And, And that in and of itself if you were going through something like this, I don't know if that would help. I, if anything, that might feel more confining, um, knowing that you're having to just basically be in a concrete box uh, while you're dealing with this stuff, and you can't just go, you know, for a walk somewhere and just get some fresh air. I mean, where are you going to go? Like Central Park? I, I, that's that's like fake fresh air. 
I don't, I, I don't know if that's true. I've never been to New York. Maybe I'll go there and think it's the most elaborate, beautiful nature extravaganza I've ever seen. But I don't know. I don't know. That, does that, that, that part didn't even make sense. But whatever. I'm keeping it in. Uh, Got to go back. Talk about the soundtrack and the score for this film. Um, soundtrack, just to touch back on that, I have to talk about just the title song for this, Rain Over Me, right? Now, if you know anything about this song, you're going to know that Rain Over Me is originally a song by The Who, uh, the rock band The Who, and that, curiously enough in this movie, they used two different versions of it. At one point, you can hear the actual Who version of it, though it's not as prominent as the one that's played at the end, which is the Pearl Jam version of it, uh, Rain Over Me. I don't actually think they say like Rain Over Me. It's like Rain Over Me. I don't know why they do that. Maybe it's just because Eddie Vedder's voice is like, oh, rain on me. That did not sound at all. It didn't sound at all like Eddie Vedder. But, and I'm not even going to try to do a better impression. That's just, that's just what you're going to get from me out of this one. But the title song works very well for this film because the song lyrics speak to yearning for connection and being free of pain. I mean, if you look at the character of Charlie Feynman, that right there pretty much sums up how the character is feeling and what he is desiring most in his life. I also think the movie is smart with the uses of the song because in the literal sense, rain, not like rain over me, but like rain, like drops of rain. Um, you think about that, that could be used in the sense of feeling like a cleanse, uh, being able to wash away grief, wash away pain. So it's also a nice tie in for uh, the character. And again, is just a really great title for this movie. I feel like I'm stealing a bit from the rewatchables on this, which that's a great podcast that I feel like I've been listening to a lot lately. Um, But Bill Simmons, he has this bit on this where it's just like, could the movie have had a better title? I don't think so. Not, not for this. I I just think rain over me. It's, it totally makes sense and fits for what this movie is going for and what the core messaging of the movie is. And also because of the fact that the song literally is used in the movie for the character. So like, it's a really personal thing specific to the character. So it totally works. Other things I got to talk about for this, the, the music, not just like the soundtrack, but like the actual score, I should talk about that. Um, so I, I I don't know if I'm going to say this guy's name right. So I'll do my best. Uh, Rolf, Rolf Kent or Ralph Kent. I think it's like Rolf Kent, whatever. I'll just say Mr. Kent. Uh, he is the composer that did music for, uh, Alexander Payne a couple of times. He did it in about Schmidt. Great, great Jack Nicholson film. And, And also sideways, the, you know, Paul Giamatti classic. I, I always think of, I always think of that one line. And if they want to drink Merlot, we're drinking Merlot. No, if anybody orders Merlot, I'm leaving. I am not drinking any fucking Merlot. Uh, and then he also did the music for Up in the Air. So anyways, probably underlooked composer, somebody whose name you're not going to hear a bunch. But hey, I think he's going to get a shout out for this because he deserves it. His score in this movie is emotionally deep. It's atmospheric. And I feel like the melodies are very poignant. Um, along with the motifs that just really, really work particularly well um, for both the characters of Alan and Charlie. There are, there, are, there are other uses, of course, of the music throughout the movie, but in particular, the main themes for both those characters I just find really click uh, and, and work well with the atmosphere of the movie. Last shout-outs for the music slash soundtrack slash all that stuff. Um, the Birds of St. Mark's, the Jackson Brown, that song gets used to powerful effect in the movie. Um, as well, not to powerful effect, but entertaining effect, 
uh, out in the street, Bruce Springsteen. So the Birds of St. Mark, look up the live version of that because that's the best version of that, in my opinion. The studio one's not as good, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and then Out in the Street is a great uh, Bruce Springsteen song that is used in the movie. Let's explore some other ground in this film, okay? Gotta go back to talking about this notion of passing people by, right? I think it's, again, something that we all can understand. We get we get consumed, we consume ourselves with responsibilities, distractions, even at times avoiding people purposely because we don't want to deal with their shit, right? We, d- we don't even want to deal with it or we just don't even want to think about what they're going through or facing because we're just so consumed with our own bullshit. Um, but it makes you think. It just makes you think about what's really behind a face, right? Again, a face in the crowd. I just kind of keep, keep going back to this idea of like the people we pass and we don't think twice about. But if you think about it, all of us, every human, we have a lifetime of experience. We have emotions. We have highs, lows, ups and downs, trials, tribulations, successes, joys. People are complex. People are very complex. And I think it is exhausting to try to think that much about every single person because really unless you're like a total genius or have a very special mental gift you're not going to be able to devote that much time and energy to that so it's it's not like it's a personal thing when people do it but it is something i think we should think about um and this movie does certainly help us think on that i also think that this movie really makes me think about how much time it actually takes to have a meaningful connection with somebody. I mean, really think about this. If you're, you know, you think about all your best relationships that you have in life, whether they be um, romantic ones that you've had, or if you're married, um, you can think about your immediate family, your best friends. If you think about that, you've had to devote probably a significant amount of time just to be able to maintain all of those. And we're not even including work acquaintances, casual friends, people that you meet here and there that you bump into. And, you know, they do great things for your life, but, you know, you just don't really overcommit to them. I think there's something to say about that. Does it mean that we should be committing more time and energy to people because there's not enough people that get the connection? Right. That's a possibility. We're not giving enough of ourselves over. But then that's kind of generalizing, I think, too. I mean, there's a lot of people I know that are social butterflies, like they're, they're able to connect with a ton of different people it may not be like super, super deep, but they're able to do it and it works well for them and it does provide meaning to the other people. But then also at the same time, I think counterintuitively, I guess a little bit on this, I go back to quality over quantity every time. I mean, the, the most important friendships that I would ever have in life they're they're not going to be, you know, by the hundreds, you know, it'll be like a handful, like five, six, seven, eight, ten, maybe if I'm lucky um, of people that I could say, like, really, really matter to me and that I've actually purposely devoted my time to to nurture and, and improve the relationships of. Um, I think the hard part with that is that it, it, it comes in waves, right? I mean, like you, every, everybody does this. You have periods where like you see somebody for a long time uh, and things are really clicking and then, you know, just life happens. You get busy. Somebody has kids, you get a new job, you move, interests change, your perspectives change, etc. So, you you know, you can grow apart or grow into a different person entirely. Uh, and then it just changes. So you just, you know, you don't know where things go with that. But 
I I do think it is good to touch on how much time it does actually take the meaning to to have a meaningful connection with someone. Um, and also just think about where you want to spend your time connecting with people meaningfully. That's something that I think this movie helped me think about when I first saw it is like, where, where do I really want my time with friends to be spent? Like, do I want to have a bunch of superficial friends that I just see, you know, at like various different parties or, you know, out and about and, you know, very light social settings or do, you know, do I really want to get into it with somebody uh, really get involved with somebody's life and, and really, really connect. And this this movie made me choose the latter. I, I, I still feel like I'm yearning for that to some respect, to be perfectly honest with you all. Um, not to say like, oh, poor me, I don't have friends. Like, I have friends. I do. And and I would have, I would say that I have some best friends as well. But again, the friendship that's depicted in this movie is not something I have yet to, I think, come across. And you know, God, everybody could be so fortunate as to find somebody like the the friends that are in this movie. So I don't know. I guess there is a bit of a longing aspect that I maybe am realizing that I have just by talking about this. But if I'm trying to think more practical for, for just giving input on this of like, what could we do to give our time more meaningfully to somebody? I, I just, I think I got to answer that a little bit. Well, I think you start small. I think you start small. You You do a lot of practical things like active listening. Uh, that's the polite way of saying shut up more than talk. <laughs> uh, it means you have to actually listen uh, and be present to the individual that you're talking to uh, and, and making sure that you're not trying to, you know, jump in with what you want to say. You're just really there for them and, and you're there uh, to be a good listener and to be um, there for them, quite literally. Uh, I think everybody can do better at asking questions. Um, that's just a personal pet peeve I have is when I come across people and they talk an awful lot, maybe tell you some good stories, they, you know, share a lot of interesting things with you maybe, but they never actually ask you anything. Or if they do, it's only because you've asked them first. So there, there's no real back and forth on that. And that's always a telltale sign for me that somebody either has poor social skills because they, they don't know how to do that, um, or they might just not care to. And in which case, I typically tend to step back from people like that because, as I said before, I just I, my, my time is precious and, and how I choose to spend it and who I choose to spend it with, it, it does matter to me. Uh, and I don't want to waste it on people that don't have any genuine interest in me as much as I have in them. Um, I think another piece to this is just vulnerability. You, you got to be real with people, uh, whether that means that you're perfectly spoken, you're on top of your game mentally, you're not having a bad day, whatever. You, you can't always promise that, but I think... You have to express that side of yourself if you're going to really allow people into your lives or you into theirs is you, you just got to be real, got to be vulnerable. Complimenting too, that that's something I think that's also a lost art, sadly, is people not knowing uh, either how to give a compliment or just, hey, like maybe I should take the time to just tell somebody like, hey, like you look nice today. Your hair looks good. Did you get a haircut? Oh, that's nice. That's a nice shirt. Oh, that's a, I like that thing that you did. I like that email that you sent out, whatever the hell it is. Um, compliments, man. Like just say some nice things to people more from time to time. You, you might actually find that even just the most minuscule smile that you get somebody to do, it, it's going to boost their day and it's certainly going to boost yours. Um, and then probably my biggest one, if, like just biggest, biggest piece of advice for this. If you're going to try to make meaningful connection with people is you got to follow up. 
You got to follow up. I, I cannot tell you how many times in my life I have connected with people, charming people, smart people, well-to-do people, and they make they can make a great first impression. They can. And then they promise, not even promise, but they they, they hype up that they're going to, you know, be like the sun and the moon for you. Like, we're, we're going to be so great for you. We're going we're gonna to be involved with you. And you never hear from them again. Nope. Uh, these are just professional networkers is kind of how I call them. You know, people that know how to do a good elevator pitch. They know how to get your attention for a little bit. Uh, and then they just kind of, you know, piss off and do other things. I don't want you to do that. So, so don't, don't do that. Following up and following through is absolutely key when it comes to connecting with people because tying back to what I was saying at the beginning of this monologue, I guess, about, you know, putting good effort in with people. It starts with you starts with how much time that you're willing to put into a person. And if you yourself are not willing to be proactive about that and make the effort in the long-term game for it, uh, well then you're not going to get any long-term payout, um, for, for your friendship. If you want to look at it in investment terms. Okay. A section I definitely have to devote to on this podcast for this film is entirely to the video game Shadow of the Colossus. So for all my video game people out there, this moment in the podcast is absolutely for you and people that just love video games, which video games is something that I, <clears throat> again, I, I I wish I had more lives and more time uh, to be able to talk more to these things. But video games is something that is very important to me. It is something that's always been a part of my life and it's something I'll always cherish. And it's so great to see that not only are video games actually used in this movie to great effect, but they're used accurately, meaning that the characters are not holding uh, different console controls for a game that's on a different console. Like they're holding like a Nintendo 64 controller for a PlayStation game. It doesn't work like that. And believe me, I've seen movies that make cardinal sins, (laughs) cardinal sins, video game sins when it comes to just accuracy of how well they're portrayed on the screen. But this movie does not do that. So this movie so smartly uses video games, but in particular, it's so smart in its use of Shadow of the Colossus because like what I said about Rain Over Me, the song, Shadow of the Colossus is also absolutely a character in this movie and also an important metaphor of sorts for the character of Charlie. So firstly, the game itself, if you've never played Shadow of the Colossus, um, the one that I would actually recommend playing if you're into games and whatnot is I would recommend playing the 2018 remaster that came out, which I believe if you have a PlayStation 3, possibly a PlayStation 4, uh, you should be able to find it on that. Maybe they've converted it to PS5. I don't know. But I know PS4 for sure has it because I had it at one point. I played it. It was terrific. Um, The original game for it came out in 2005, which is just two short years before this movie. So it was certainly still... Um, I'd still actually say it's a fresh new game at the time. I don't know if Shadow of the Colossus was a game that took off popularity wise right from the get go. I feel like it was kind of like the Blade Runner of video games and that it had like a, a cult following that developed over years and years, certainly not as long as Blade Runner, but it's just, I'm trying to say it's a cult game, but it's an amazing game. Absolutely amazing game. It's a game I would give 10 out of 10 if I had to give a rating to it. I find nothing wrong with the game. Um, it's beautiful, it's tragic, it's poetic, it's epic, um, it's sprawling, it's emotional, it's action-packed, it's, uh, I don't know, there's so many things I could say about the game, of which I'm sure I'll continue to do that right now. So, 
First thing on the symbolism front, the symbolism. Symbolism, what is the symbolism there? Uh, is the redemption quality of the game and how it works in this movie. So in the game, and this is going to be some overview of the game Shadow of the Colossus. So for this section of the podcast, if, if you don't give a shit about Shadow of the Colossus or you, you know, really have no interest in this, just you can skip past this part till you hear me talk about something else. But there is a redemptive quality to this that is mirrored in both the game, excuse me, that is mirrored in the movie that comes from the game, I think, if I'm saying this right. Well, I'll, I'll figure this out as I walk through it. So <clears throat> in the video game, there is a desperate protagonist that's got to face off and defeat massive imposing creatures that are in the wild of the sprawling field that are these big colossus. He's got to take them all down to resurrect his one true love. Now in the movie, in a similar way, Charlie is in a lot of ways on a quest for redemption himself. He's trying to find purpose and meaning in his life, or at least trying to be content with where his life is at without feeling pain. But being consumed with the game allows him the ability to be able to channel his grief and his anger into something that is artistic and it's also tangible to him because as I said with his own personal emotions he's not able to talk to somebody well um video this this particular video game is his only real uh, outlet his only real connection that he has to something that's not himself uh, that helps him with his pain I think and that's why he seems to continuously replay it they they never say it directly in the movie, but I have a feeling that he's probably done playthroughs of the game like 20 times or something because he's never seen playing another game. And with how often he does it, you're just kind of led to believe that he probably has played the shit out of it, but just is kind of in a trance by it and is just obsessed with doing it because of how beautiful and melancholic the game is and how it's mirroring uh, mirroring his own reality. I also find that the movie shows the escapist aspects of the video game Shadow of the Colossus and just video games in general. So Charlie, he's able to face his demons, um, not in the real world, but he can at least do it vicariously, I believe, through the form of the Colossus. And he feels safe in the act of doing so as the game is, in a sense, so far removed from his own reality. Because unlike his own world, which is truly unpredictable and stressful, the world of the video game is controllable. He He's able to be the master of his own destiny in that. Even if the ending of it is tragic, he still is controlling it. Um, and so I think there is somewhat of an escapist quality that he um, reaches for throughout the movie. Two more points that I want to make about the video game on this. So in the game Shadow of the Colossus, Wonder, that's the protagonist. I think his name is just Wonder. Um, and then there's this horse, Argo. Now, this might be reaching a little bit because I, I think at this point I'm just like trying to grasp. I'm like, just, you know, what are the other connections between this game and this movie? Because I, I refuse to believe that this is just a game that's just thrown in there for the hell of it. It, it does truly work for the story, I, I promise you. But I kept thinking that in the game with Wonder the protagonist and his horse Argo, in a way that was like Charlie and Alan. Because both are underscoring the importance of, of teamwork and solidarity and being able to overcome adversity and be able to build meaningful connections with each other. Because the protagonist and Argo, the horse, that's that's like your sole companion through through the Colossus fields. Like that, that is what you have is the horse and yourself. 
that is your only lifeline. You know, the only other thing that's in there is, is your, your, your dead, your dead spouse. I assume they're married or something. Girlfriend, I want to say, but that that's it. You got that. That's what you have. <clears throat> Charlie has nobody. He's got nobody until Alan comes into the picture. Um, and again, they both are able to work together. They literally do work together at times to take down the Colossus and it shows a meaningful connection that forms through that. And I think that's the last thing I have to say about the video games on this. And then I'm going to start to wind this down with my final thoughts on this movie and, and just get on with my life. I just, I'm just so pleased how video games are used to great effect across this entire movie, namely because it shows how people can connect over a shared interest like video games. And there's also a bonding quality that comes from it. If you don't play video games, this won't really make much sense to you, but there are a few joys in this world that are comparable to the joy that you can get from playing a video game with a friend. And, and I do mean like with a friend directly next to you, not like online. It's not the same thing. Um, that's actually something I could talk about um, at length, possibly yeah, just not on, a, not on a podcast, but like if you ever bump into me, you can ask me about it. Um, split screen games and just in-person games to me are so much better than online internet games because of, again, that human connection side of it. You just, you just don't get that. It's like having a meeting over zoom or teams. It's not the same. It's not the same at all. There's real joys that come from playing video games. Uh, you know, I got, I got two brothers and I, for, you know, long, long time in my life, I mean, arguably all of my childhood, um, even well into adulthood, we've played video games. Um, I'll tell you a personal piece of information. I think I've mentioned this before, maybe at some point I got some tattoos. Um, one of the tattoos I have is player two. Uh, my older brother has player one, uh, because he always insisted on being on the top screen. I could never get the top. I always had to be on the bottom. Um, and then my younger brother, he doesn't have player three, but perhaps one day he will consider getting that. Uh, but I literally have a video game direct reference tattoo uh, on me, like right now. So that alone should tell you how much it matters to me. Um, I worked at a video game store at one point in my youth. Um, great memories with that. Great memories for sure. Uh, but I, I've played tons of video games. And, and if I had more time, if I had more time in my life, I would certainly play more. Um, I think the only things that I'm really playing right now is uh, Super Mario RPG on the Switch. And then I also got Super Mario Wonder, but I haven't had time to go into that yet. Uh, but I will here probably in like the next month or so because I got a trip coming up. But I'll, I'm not going to share anything about that here. But yeah, I'm going to be going on a trip soon. And so I can play with the Switch. Um, <clears throat> but let me let me just see. So video games. Um, just, just There's so many pivotal games that come to mind of memories that are indelible to me that they're just they're just the best. Um, whether it was playing GoldenEye, tons of memories playing all the Halo games, uh, Crackdown, Gears of War, the Elder Scrolls games, um, Mass Effect. Mass Effect, I, I could talk about that one at great length. Actually, truthfully, I, I hope that one day a movie gets made out of that, but I feel like I'm going to be dreaming on that one for a while. Um but anyways, yeah, video games just really mean a lot to me. And I just think that there's few movies that come to mind that actually use it well and have it make sense to the story while also serving the story and, and just making you want to play video games with a friend. So Rain Over Me is always going to get a special place in my heart just purely because of that notion alone. What I want to end the podcast on for Rain Over Me is talking about my favorite 
moments of the movie or the best moments that I think that are in this movie. Uh, these are in no particular order. If you've seen the movie, you can skip around to these. I'll actually probably put in clips where I can uh, throughout this segment of the podcast so that you can have some context for this. Um, or if nothing else, just just enjoy listening to the audio of it. So here we go. The opening. The opening of this movie is one of my favorite openings. I already talked about partly that being due to the song Simple Man by Graham Nash being used. It's beautifully shot and it encapsulates without having to say anything that it is about a person that is aimlessly wandering in search of meaning for his life. And that right there is something that I think you could sit on. Just what I said there, aimlessly wandering around in search of meaning. I think we've all been there at one point in our life, maybe not aimlessly, you know, maybe wondering, but, uh, we've all been there, all been there. That's for sure. Um, playing shadow of the Colossus talked about that. Now I, I talked about like just the, the great metaphors and symbol, symbolic qualities of the game. Uh, but the shadow of the Colossus scenes are actually some of the most joyful scenes in the entire movie. Uh, probably my favorite scene with it, just from a comedy standpoint is the, you, you know, you, you said that, or how, how does he say it? I'll just, I'll just put the clip in. I could show you how to do it, give you some hints, but I'll warn you, it's very addictive. Well, I don't have an addictive personality, so just show me how to do it. Something I said funny. All right. That'll call your horse, the triangle, so you jump. Okay, okay, very good. All right, stab his arm. Come stab him in the arm. No, you, you gotta stab him in the right spot. Come stab him in it right yeah. there. You gotta be on the light. Stab Shit. him. That's not gonna now work. See? I gotta climb this big son of a bitch. <laughs> Look, just, just put it down, all right? Rest. Next time you come over, you'll be even better. You gotta let it all soak. No, 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 no. There's, right now, no next. Now. I thought you don't have an addictive personality. <laughs> that was the line of the night, man. <laughs> you're an addict. Say it, man. Say you're an yeah. ass. Okay, I'm an addict. Come on now, Sam. Wait. Oh, I'm on your ass, bird. Oh, I lost. Oh, you said you don't have an addictive personality. That was the line of the night. That right there is actually, uh, that's a saying that I've used periodically. I think I stole it from the movie. As I, I've said periodically, like, oh, that was the line of the night. And that, that is 100% stolen from this movie. So, bam, I said it. Next time I say it out in public, you'll know why I said it. Um, <clears throat> I also really like the scene uh, where Adam Sandler shows up late at night and just basically like a child is asking uh, Alan if he has permission to go out. As any person that can tell you that's married, um, I can tell you if I had a buddy show up at like nine or 10 o'clock asking me to go out, uh, my wife would probably do a similar thing, though I don't think she would be as uh, smooth about it as Jada Pinkett Smith was. I'm pretty sure my wife would be like, oh, hell no, like you can't go get your ass inside or something to the extent of that in Portuguese. She would probably revert to the native language for that one. Um, now this next scene is not funny at all. Uh, this one's actually up there with like the most dramatic scenes in the movie, but I mean, I, I did say favorite or best moments in the film, not necessarily most entertaining. Um, there is a, a suicide attempt scene in this movie. It is, I think it is the most powerful scene for me in the movie. I mean, some might argue the court scene movie is like the most dramatically gut punching or perhaps the scene where he's revealing what actually happened to his family. 
Um, <clears throat> but I think this scene is actually the one that really, really, really hits me in the feels. Um, I think it's because setting up the scene, you have him in there flipping around, not not on his video game, but he he's flipping around on channels and just there's like awful news stories that are on. So that's obviously not helping with his depression. Um, <clears throat> but then he, he stumbles across this old movie from the 1940s called, uh, you were never lovelier, uh, 1942 to be exact, uh, with Fred Astaire and Rita Hayworth who Rita Hayworth, a lot of us from my generation are just going to think of Shawshank Redemption and anybody that was around for the forties is going to think of her in the forties. Um, but this particular movie shows up and, and in particular, there's this scene, um, of them doing this romantic kind of song and dance number with each other of which I'll, I'll put that scene actually in the description of this episode. So you can look that up because even if you never see the movie, um, that scene is just so sweet and it makes you feel like that old kind of Hollywood beauty where you're just like, man, they just really don't make old classics like this ever again. I think the closest thing we've come to it is maybe when Damien Chazelle brought La La Land up um, in 2016. But yeah, I mean, they just don't make them like that anymore. But but that being said, um, he he stumbles across this and I think you know, he, he can't help but think about his wife and how this couple in the movie looks so happy and and he's just, you know, so absolutely miserable. Um, and they do this great job with the edit where it shows him walking down the hallway shortly after this moment. And they just intercut moments, very brief snippets where you can just for a glimpse, see what he had. Um, he has pictures on the walls, it's vibrant, it's bright, and then it cuts to just where it's at now, where it's dark, it's dim, it's dreary, it's, it's, it's sad, it's, um, it's gloomy, it's not looking good, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's one of the best edits I've actually seen in, in any, any movie, I would say, um, just because it just shows the past joy that he had contrasted with the pain, um, really, really devastating stuff. Um, but then just the way that you can see him acting without him having to say anything again, I I go back to this. Anytime people can do this in film, I think that's the way to go. Sometimes is less is more. Um, the way that he's basically able to convey that he wants to die, you know, that he just basically doesn't want to live anymore and that he actually really, you know, resorts to, um, you know, suicide by police, which th- this is not a, this is not a subject to joke around about. I, I, I can't make any light of that. Um, yeah, it's, it's heavy stuff, really heavy stuff. And it don't matter that it's Adam Sandler. Like, again, believe me. I mean, you watch that scene, <laughs> you try to tell me you're not going to feel something during that scene. There's something wrong with you. <laughs> I'll just say that. Um, yeah, that's, that's a tough one. Um, other tough ones on here, and then I'll wrap this up <clears throat> when he reveals what happened with the backdrop of the Bruce Springsteen song that's playing. Um, that whole scene is just an entire roller coaster. Um, believe it's done. in I don't know if it's a single take, but it looks pretty close to that. I mean, like there's very little, um, cutting that's done in that scene. It's very much singular. Um, Adam Sandler just like he he you know it's he goes on a roller coaster you know he starts to slowly 
open up about it, but it's still extremely difficult for him to get it out. Um, but his reaction feels earnest. It feels real. I mean, it's that if anything, like if, if he was ever going to get an award for this movie, they could probably just, you know, put that as like his Oscar clip. Um, and, and I think, I think that would work quite well. Um, yeah, devastatingly powerful scene though. Um, <clears throat> last one. Last scene is the court scene. Um, there is a court blow up scene in this where I won't spoil it all, but his character just has an eruption. Um, but there's so many things that work in it. It's, it's so raw. The, the way that it's handled and, and executed is, is very raw. Uh, it's got D Suth. I'm the only person that calls Donald Sutherland D Suth, by the way. And it's not like I call his son Keith, Keith but D Suth. I don't know. I just, I, I've always called Donald Sutherland that to myself and apparently now you, uh, but Don, Donald Sutherland is in this movie, and his part's not huge in the movie, but he is effective. He is effective at being a <clears throat> a morally ethical and powerful judge. Um, really, really great scene from him. Uh, B.J. Novak, uh, that most people will know from Ryan in The Office. Well, he's a complete Ryan in this, and basically sucks. And you're, uh, yeah, he he pulls a move in this that you're you're not gonna be pleased about. And then, of course, that's where the the movie directly directly uses "Rain Over Me" um, to again just tremendous effect for the scene, and it just makes complete sense for the story and what it's doing for for them to use that um, and have that scene just explode the way it does. It's uh, it get, it gets me every time, every single time. <sighs> okay, um, I think that's all I got in the tank right now for "Rain Over Me." This is a podcast where I feel like because of how many thoughts I have about this movie, even though I talked about it for as long as I did, it's like, it feels like it just scratches the surface. This is a movie I could have a conversation about with anybody at any time, anywhere, any place. Um, I love this movie. I, I think I've been quoted on record before as saying it might be my favorite movie, that might be being a stretch though. Cause like, I, I can't stand it when people ask me that question of, Whoa, what's your favorite movie? There's too many. There, there's just absolutely too many of them. Um, rain over me though, is one that came to me in my life at a moment where I didn't realize how much I needed it and how much resonance it would have with me over the years. I think it holds up tremendously well. I think it's one of Adam Sandler, if not arguably his best dramatic performance that more people should be talking about. Um, no disrespect to Punch Drunk Love, but I mean, the movie has gotten its accolades from the film community and then some in spades over the years. Uh, but where's the love for Rain Over Me? I I, I want to see it. So I guess that's partly also why I'm putting out this podcast is just to be a appreciation endorsement for this film. Um. But this movie is just one of the ones that really, really has touched me in many, many ways. And I don't think there's going to be a lot of movies that have quite, quite the same reaction as I have to this one. Um, I also just weirdly enough, not, not weirdly enough, but just random factoid about this. Uh, I also had a poster of this in my college dorm room. Uh, which you, you wouldn't you wouldn't think, oh, rain over me. That's going to be your college poster. Like, where's Jaws or... Um, what are, what are other college movie posters that people do? So, someone can tell me that in the comments. Um, but yeah, I had a poster for this that I, I actually wish I still had it. I don't know what happened to it or if it got ripped. Maybe one day I will get it again. But I actually do think that if I ever get more wall space, 
Um, I would absolutely love to have like a, uh, a like a full theatrical frame poster for this for this movie. So that would be a that'd be a dream come true because this is a great film. So. Uh, if nothing else, everybody, I hope that you enjoyed listening to me talk about Rain Over Me. I uh, hope you enjoyed some of the insights that came from this, some of the um, entertainment, I want to say, question <laughs> question mark. Um, just the time spent. I hope you enjoyed the time spent with me talking about this movie. Um, if you haven't checked it out, definitely check it out for yourself. See what you think. Um, you agree with me on this movie? Great. Awesome. Let me know. You think I'm full of shit? Also, <laughs> Also, let me know. Um, I'm always open to your reactions, to your comments, to your feedback, because I do actually pay attention to it. Um, And then the very last thing I'll say on this is that I just, I really appreciate everybody, um, everybody that knows me personally, or just the the fans that I do have that uh, that have been patient as I took a break from from the podcast. And again, it was an unplanned break. I I really didn't mean to do it. but it was needed for all the reasons I stated at the top of the episode. And I'm going to do my best to make sure I don't do that again anytime soon. So I'm going to do my best. Keep the content coming. I'm still keeping an eye out for film festivals. So if anybody does have any ideas for film fest that they think that I should attend, um, let me know about that. Uh, and that's it. So appreciate it. Appreciate everybody. Uh, more content coming to you soon. Um, yeah. That's all I got to say. Be good to each other out there. Stay safe. And I'll catch you all in the next episode. Take care.